everyone, Duncan Fletcher here, back for another segment of the PADS Athlete Development Podcast Series. Our next guest is a Dallas-based writer and a former academic, sushi chef, and parking lot attendant who holds a PhD from the University of Virginia. His written work has appeared in The New Republic, The New York Times Magazine, The Washington Post, The Chronicle of Higher Education, America, Commonweal, and elsewhere. His latest project has focused on the topic of burnout. A catch-all phrase that may be misunderstood, but has particular relevance in the age of COVID, endless Zoom calls, and the crossover of the workplace and the home. He recently published the book, The End of Burnout. We hope you enjoy the conversation and his perspectives on the phenomenon of burnout. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Jonathan Malsik. Hi everyone, Duncan Fletcher here. Coming back at you with another round of the Athlete Development Podcast Series. I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn. Good morning, Duncan. Good morning, John. Actually, we're not morning. We're afternoon. So good afternoon. It's such a great day. I'm holding on to the morning. Well, you know, it's a podcast, Steph, so you're not supposed to tell anybody what time it is, but we'll let that go for now. (laughs) We're also very fortunate here to have Dr. John Melsick. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Very glad to have you in this discussion today. So... We're going to dive right into it, I guess, to kind of give our our audience a bit of a background here. You are an expert in understanding burnout. And I think as we kind of explore what's going on in the the world of, uh, you know, almost post-pandemic, and there's a lot of talk of burnout. And one of the interesting things as we were going through the different materials that we had the chance to, to go through that you provided is that the definition of what burnout is, isn't real clear. So I guess I was going to ask you right out of the gate, when we're talking to our group, how do we define burnout? What is it? Yeah, I think that most broadly, uh, and well, I'll start with a, a broad and unscientific definition and get down to a more scientific one. So most broadly, burnout is the experience of being stretched over a long period of time between your ideals for work and the reality of your job. So we go in, we go to work every day with a set of ideals, things that we're hoping to get out of our job, not just a salary and benefits and things like that, but also dignity, character, purpose, meaning, the, the sense of a contribution, stuff like that. And then once we're at work, we're in working conditions that often don't, uh, that don't meet up those expectations that we have. And when we're in a situation where, where it, there is a gap and we try to hold things together over a long period of time, that is the experience of burnouts. Now, a little bit more scientifically, the way that researchers study burnout is they measure it along three dimensions. Uh, there's exhaustion, sometimes called emotional exhaustion. There's cynicism, sometimes called depersonalization. So when you start treating your patients, clients, customers, students, and so on as less than the full human beings they are, you become callous and frustrated and angry towards them. And then the third dimension is a sense of ineffectiveness, this feeling that your work is not accomplishing anything. And so when people score high on those three dimensions, on uh, an instrument that's called the Maslach Burnout Inventory, then they are kind of classically burned out. Though I should add that this is a, a research uh, instrument, not a diagnostic tool. There is no di- uh, di- clinical diagnosis 
of burnout in North America uh, currently. Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things that, you know, that kind of threw me is that people talk about burnout. They're very um, flippant when they talk about burnout. Just generally speaking, I'm burned out about this, I'm burned out about that. But I guess what's interesting is that burnout is is purely an occupational phenomenon. It's driven in and around the workplace. Is that not right? Right. And that's where most of the research has been for the last almost 50 years. So focused on workers and their experience of those three dimensions, exhaustion, cynicism, ineffectiveness. And you're right to say that in the culture generally, we, yeah, we talk about burnout. We talk about home buying burnout. I've read about dating burnouts. I've read about burning man burnout. Um, those are probably not uh, going to be very scientifically valid uh, phenomena. But there is some interesting research, uh, particularly on parenting burnout, that is starting to develop. So there are uh, 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 a survey has been developed to measure uh, how parents are perhaps feeling burned out, feeling exhausted, cynical, and so on towards their duties as parents. And, you know, parenting is both like and unlike work um, in significant ways. And so, you know, that I think is the one area where the expansion of the, the definition of burnout shows some promise. Uh, I am not expecting there to be a lot of research into uh, dating or home buying burnout uh, on the horizon. Well, I'm uh, far removed from the dating pool, but I can definitely talk about parenting uh, burnout. And I, I could see how that could be a real thing. There's a couple of times I've wanted to punt my 11-year-old a good distance. Uh, so yeah, I'm not sure if that constitutes burnout, but Steph, I know you got three rugrats at home. What do you think? I do. And I can definitely relate to the burnout in different aspects. Um, you know, being uh, at home with your spouse, with your kids, um, trying to manage it all, not having that opportunity to decompress or remove yourself where pre-COVID, most of us went to an office. And so you were able to almost compartmentalize the different aspects of your life. And now everything was in one locale, your home your kids, your spouse, um, your work, the cooking, everything. So you weren't able to differentiate home, work, life, kids, all of that. So I definitely can relate to that type of kid burnout. Yeah, exactly. And as a result of everything you just described, burnout has kind of become this go-to term to describe our really our dissatisfaction with our lives uh, during the last couple of years. Um, but it's interesting that it's a work-related term that we're turning to. And I think that that kind of speaks to the fact, you know, Stephanie, like you were just saying, work and everything else in our lives kind of merged together for, you know, not for everyone, but for many uh, workers. And as a result, we're reaching for this work-related term uh, and my hope is that as we're able to kind of pull those different things apart uh, over the several months and, and probably years, we'll be able to zero in on what those things are in our workplaces that are the cause of a lot of that uh, unhappiness. And I think it's important to point out that 
we had the uh, the opportunity to do some work with Dr. Michael Sagas and explore the impact of the pandemic as it relates to you know burnout and the just the general impact on professionals working in athlete development uh, from a career perspective and the impact it had on them. And that was one of the elements that was clearly being looked at. And it and as a as, as somebody that's worked in that environment and a lot of people that have had some pretty challenging times over the past few years, when you're kind of looking at yourself going, am I burnt out? What are you really looking for to kind of make that assessment? Maybe you don't have the, uh, like you said, it's not a diagnostic tool. Maybe you don't have access, access to that. But what are some of the sort of the things that you're looking for to say, hey, maybe I am at that burnt out phase? Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, so it's those three dimensions and some of the specific things that you might look for, for instance, with exhaustion is just, a, a, I mean, we all know what exhaustion is like, but with burnout, it's often a kind of exhaustion that doesn't really go away with rest. It's really pervasive. Um, and part of my interest in this topic is that burnout happened to me. I had been a college professor and at one point I was, you know, <laughs> so miserable that I took uh, a semester of unpaid leave. And after five months of rest, I thought, oh, I'm going to be I'm going to be fine. Um, but I wasn't. And, and in fact, I was every bit as miserable after a, a couple weeks back on the job because the conditions of the job hadn't really changed. So I was just right back in that situation that caused me to burn out in the first place. So, yeah, I'd say like looking for a, a kind of exhaustion that never seems to go away, uh, feeling drained every single day or, or very often. Um, frustration. You know, so the second dimension of cynicism that would be frustration, a sense of emotional distance from your job. Um, uh, one worker who I spoke with uh, for the book was a uh, social worker who described herself gossiping about her coworkers. Um, and, you know, that's that's one that you don't like when you think of burnout, we we don't go to like gossip. Um, but it's it's totally a, a case of cynicism or depersonalization. You know, she had become callous toward the people she was working with. Uh, and so there can be a whole range of ways of, you know, being cynical or, or depersonalizing your coworkers and, and clients and so on. Um, and finally, yeah, the third dimension of feeling ineffective uh, in, a, in a sense of ineffectiveness would be, do you do you see your work accomplishing anything? And often that sense of ineffectiveness is detached from actual ineffectiveness. You might still be reasonably effective at your job, but if you can't feel that, if you can't see it, uh, if you're complaining to your coworkers and feeling like your work is just meaningless, uh, then that's a good sign. Interesting. Really interesting. And I think um, one of the things that jumped to my mind as I you know, listened to you talk and look and going again through some of the things that you, you've talked about in your, in your work is the issue of cynicism. And I'm curious, if you were to try and weight which of these is, is worse, I'm just curious where cynicism fits in the scheme of things. So I've actually done a little bit of reading around uh, in the literature around cynicism. I've heard it described uh, as uh, cynicism is uh, burnout's you know, ugly stepsister or something along those lines. They're very closely related. But if you were to look at it and go, which of these really kind of you think drives the bus? Is there anything that jumps out to mind uh, or jumps to your mind as to what that may actually be? 
Yeah, this is one where there's a lot of debate or there has been a lot of debate uh, over the years within burnout research. Initially, the model was that exhaustion drives the bus, that people are overworked, they have too great a client or patient or student load, and they get they become very tired. And so cynicism is a response to that, to maintain a level of emotional distance to kind of protect the self. And I think on that model, it was hard to say where ineffectiveness came came in. Um, and there's still some debate over this. There's even some debate over whether the sense of ineffectiveness really is a third dimension. And I think that there's a good case to be made, not only that it is, but that it's it can be a way into burnout every bit as much as exhaustion and cynicism are. So, I mean, I have spoken with workers like that, that social worker I was describing a moment ago, who was cynical, but did not describe herself as exhausted. Uh, you know, cynicism was really her way into burnout. Uh, and for others, I think that for me, it was probably a sense of ineffectiveness. Uh, though, like I've said, the, probably for many, it is, uh, it is exhaustion. And so, yeah, short answer is that there's still some debate. And I, my, my sense is that any one of those dimensions can be the gateway. Got it. And John, I, I appreciate how you shared some um, examples of, of burnout and, you know, kind of some signs for individuals. But you also discussed um, that an individual employee can't necessarily eradicate burnout alone. Um, they need the help of, of those within the organization. Can you share and shed some light on things that can be done to help minimize the burnout in, in the workplace, especially as we're speaking to our participants who have been, um, you know, working with athletes during this heightened time of, of, of burnout? Right. And the, the sad truth is that it just isn't easy. Um, a problem like burnout can't be solved by a simple life hack or, or something like that, unfortunately. And the basic reason for that is that, you know, the causes are not primarily within the individual. There isn't something that went wrong with you uh, that caused you to burn out. Uh, it, it isn't like uh, many injuries uh, in, in that sense. Uh, it's not like, oh, well, here's here's the thing. Here's, you know, where, you know, you sprained your ankle or something like that. Um, because the, the causes are primarily in the individual's relationship to the workplace, which is where their working conditions are, and to the broader culture of work in the society, which is where most of us get our ideals for, for work from. And so it's in those areas where the change has to happen. And I would say that for a worker who identifies themselves as being burned out or perhaps uh, is identified um, by one of their coworkers or superiors, then something about their job needs to change in order for them to get over burnout. Uh, and it's also likely that if you are suffering from burnout, there's a good chance that the person next to you is too, because they're working in similar conditions. And so it may be that structural change needs to happen within the workplace. Perhaps 
you know, some and it may depend on how the burnout is manifested. It could mean, you know, shorter hours, a short, a smaller client load. Uh, it could mean transferring to a different department within the same organization. It could mean that, you know, perhaps workplace community has broken down or there are persistent, um, uh, you know, there, there are persistent unfairness in the workplace. If someone is kind of consistently overlooked uh, or overburdened, then that could be a cause. Um, and so it's, I can't be too prescriptive because it, it probably depends somewhat on what is going on in that workplace. But I think the first step just has to be to talk about those working conditions with the people you work with, not only your coworkers and your supervisors, but also the people your work serves, you know, the athletes you are working with. Uh, you know, you want the best for them and you're going to only be able to deliver if you yourself are at your best, too. Something just came to mind as you were you were talking, um, you know, I think during the last few years, there's been an increase in burnout for some individuals with the, the delineation between work life balance. But I'm wondering if you've seen the flip side where there are certain industries that the demand was to be at work till 12, two in the morning, because if you're there all the time, you're committed, you're working hard. And now these individuals for the last two years have been working from home and many have shown that productivity can happen without working 100 hours a week. Just wondering if any of that has risen in in your research. Yeah, it's certainly true that many people are uh, productive at home. Uh, the, The risk or the downside of that is that there aren't at home, there aren't the built in boundaries on work. Uh, and so for many, even as they're more productive, there can still people can still end up working extremely long and draining hours uh, because they're not showing up to an office. They're not, you know, getting in their car at the end of the day. Uh, you know, they're I mean, your 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 work is uh, only as far away as you know, your laptop or your smartphone or something like that. Um, and so that I think is the real risk that we're facing. If we kind of remove the physical location of work, then the boundaries between work and the rest of our lives are, you know, become much, much harder to guard. So I think what's fascinating about this conversation is, you know, you've talked about in your work that burnout really isn't the fault of the employee, it's the environment. And then you have the whole counter narrative where you're talking about, I think a lot of young people, like even our generation, but particularly, I know the millennial generation have brought on this idea, like work needs to be purposeful, needs to drive sort of your mission. You need to really associate yourself with how you're, you're going with your gig, um, you know, have it aligned with who you want to be. But like you said, that may be a completely unrealistic expectation for a job uh, to have. So I guess, you know, as I'm thinking about this, it, how does someone strive to achieve that alignment between their career and, you know, their, their sort of work-life balance? I mean, just what do you recommend? What have you seen in the research? Because one of the things you wrote, which I thought was awesome, is that one of the best gigs that you had was also as a parking attendant, where you were just like, yeah, this is, this is a piece of cake. So maybe you could talk to that a little bit. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of a paradox here in how an individual should approach this. And it, it kind of comes down to this question of ideals. Um, and it may be that a lot of younger workers 
have extremely, in fact, I, I know it's true, have extremely high ideals for their work. And with good reason, um, you know, ideals are good things to have. And also, a lot of these workers have been told their whole lives, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. You know, you're going to make a dent in the universe, all of this. Like they've been encouraged to have these very high ideals. And those ideals, yeah, they can, our work should matter and we should strive to make a difference. At the same time, those ideals can cause us real problems when we get into the workplace and they're not realized. And that's particularly true for younger workers who often work in the worst conditions. <laughs> you know, as soon as you start your career, those are often the worst conditions you will ever work in in your life. Uh, you're going to have many of the worst responsibilities. You're going to get the least recognition, certainly the least pay. And that can wear on a worker. And, you know, so there has to be a, a, a even though I, I don't think that the that managing your own ideals is going to magically cure burnout, uh, there has to be some measure of keeping ideals from departing too much from reality and recognizing that a job isn't going to completely fulfill you as a person. That just is not something that works can do. And I think that was the lesson for me of the parking lot, uh, which is that, you know, I mean, I, I had a PhD in religious studies at the time, and I was a parking lot attendant. And that job really showed me that work didn't have to fulfill me, uh, that it was fine if my job just, you know, was a way for me to earn, uh, you know, an okay living and, um, you know, and stay out of my way otherwise, uh, which is what that job did. I would probably not have wanted to make an entire career out of being a parking lot attendant, but there is an important lesson there to, it, it kept me, uh, well, when I remember that lesson, which is not always, um, it keeps me from recognizing, or it keeps me from over, overvaluing and over-identifying with my job. And that definitely is a shift in, in kind of perspective because we often, you know, live by that um, motto of if, if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. So that's really having to shift the narrative um, because I think, as you said, most of us live by that, assume that's the way that we should be fulfilling our life, that our job should be part of our purpose, not just our passion. To that, to that end, in the work that we did with the, the, the athlete development research is we sort of identified some insulating factors that were really helpful for folks as they were going through the pandemic and trying to, you know, in essence, either survive it or in some instances, we had individuals who, who kind of thrived in that, in, in, that, in that environment. Are there insulating factors that can be helpful to preventing burnout? And I guess the other question that jumps to mind doesn't matter how old you are and where you are in the food chain. So like you said, I think you made a great point. When you first start working, it sucks. Like you're, you're the low man on the totem pole. You get the crap kicked out of you. How does that play out? Or, so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on those, uh, on those particular, on two thoughts. There. Just throwing curveball after curveball at you here, John. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, you got, there's three things. There's like the insulating factors. Uh, there's the, the point you are, uh, in your career, uh, and there's one other, one other, other curveball, the second curveball. 
See, this is this is how good I am at podcasting and interviews, John. Is that I think I've lost my third curveball. No, it was the uh, the uh, it was definitely the insulating factors, the age, uh, and then what can be done to 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 sort of prevent it. I guess sure. Okay, it, yeah, yeah. Where you are in the food chain, yeah, yeah. So the 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 age and the location, basically, and the organizational chart uh, are those are those are kind of interesting. Like I. It went in assuming that burnout was something that got worse with time so that the older workers were the ones who most suffered from it. And that is not exactly true. Uh, and for a few reasons. I mean, one is, you know, what we were uh, just talking about, how the younger workers often labor in the worst conditions while having the highest ideals. So they're kind of most exposed. But in addition, younger workers who burn out in one career will very often quit and move into another career. And they may settle into one that they can work in sustainably for a long time. And so the people who stay in, a, in one organization or in one career for a long time are often the, you know, the survivors. They're the ones who have not suffered uh, through serious burnout during their careers. Uh, and, you know, the, the people who did are, are in many cases not in that career anymore. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of the, you know, where you stand in the, you know, the corporate hierarchy, I haven't seen uh, data suggesting very strongly one way or another. It's that, you know, either that the boss is, you know, free from burnout or that uh, the workers on the lowest rungs are most exposed to burnout or most free from burnout. Uh, I think that burnout functions, you know, very much up and down the chain because, you know, you're, 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 there's always the possibility for that for those mismatches between what you're expecting and what you're actually getting. Um, the The ideals of a CEO might be very different from the ideals of a you know an early career uh, worker. And yeah, I mean, the the demands on them will be different. The resources that they have at their disposal are going to be different. And the the problem is the gap. Um, and when when there's a a misalignment, no matter where you are, there's the potential for burnout. I'd be interested to hear. I mean, what you know kind of buffering factors you found in the research? Well, there's a couple. Uh, and and Steph, keep me honest here. I think marriage was uh, is an insulating factor. Uh, financial uh, status was an insulating factor. Yeah. Uh, flexibility of work schedule was another one. Those are, I think, the big three. three. Yeah. yeah, Steph, I don't know if there's anything else there that I'm missing. But those seem to, and I think the number one thing was actually marriage, which I thought was interesting. Yes. As it related particularly to the pandemic, uh, the people that really ate it uh, in our industry were those that were single, uh, which again, is really quite interesting. So that kind of expanded beyond the, the age spectrum. But if you were single, uh, there was a real issue, uh, or not a real issue, there was a probability that you may have a real issue during the pandemic with burnout. Yeah, and and we kind of made the assumption that it could be due to the isolation, especially the height of things when everyone was quarantined. You know, and so it, it's tough if you're quarantined with your spouse twenty four seven, perhaps. But it also could be even more challenging if you're used to having those touch points of other individuals and you're by yourself. Um, 
that isolation. Yeah. I, I did have one follow-up, you know, I was thinking about the generations and, um, Yes, as, a, as a someone breaking into an industry, you know, your ideals might be high, um, the workload might be extremely taxing. But I also wonder with some of the individuals that are entering, if anything was exam- examined in terms of coping mechanisms, because I think we've seen that sometimes individuals that are younger or different generations, I know there's millennials and X and Y and Z and all of that, um, if there was anything that came out in the research um, that perhaps some of the burnout came to, it was due to the lack of coping skills. Sorry, John, you're on mute, man. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that's definitely something that gets studied. And uh, off the top of my head, I, I can think of one study that found that avoidant strategies are not good. Um, you know, if if your coping skill is to just ignore the problem or something like that, then you're you're going to be exposed to a greater chance of burnout. Um, one other thing, you know, again, yeah, I I I, I think that you know uh, organizational factors are bigger, but we can't totally ignore personality factors. Um, so if you think about the big five personality traits that psychologists talk about. And I will try to uh, remember what all five of them are. There's like agreeableness, neuroticism, uh, openness to experience that might have been renamed and two others. So you're good to go. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the, the, the one one fairly consistent finding is that people who score high on neuroticism, in other words, people like me, are more likely to score high on burnout measures. Uh, And people who score, I think people who score high on conscientiousness, uh, perhaps are a little bit lower and uh, sort of agreeable people, I think, tend to, to score lower as well. So there are some personality characteristics uh, that are built in there, though. I think the lesson is not uh, let's just find and fire all of the neurotics, um, particularly. I mean, in in some industries, <laughs> uh, that's going to leave you with no employees. So it's, it's to kind of flip the, the script a bit. We've definitely been talking a lot about from the individual perspective. You start thinking about it from the employer perspective. What kind of jumped out to me, and I know you've already kind of talked about it a little bit, but like you said, it, it, it's driven by the environment in the workplace. And a lot of the environment is driven by, you know, your direct manager or the broader boss. It almost seems to me that this is a game is if you're a leader within a larger organization and you start having, and you're, let's just say you're, you have the forethought to actually look at your employees and, and assess them for burnout. It seems like an excellent way to kind of play whack-a-mole of the bad manager. Because if you have a high degree of, of burnout, there's a high probability that you're, you're dealing with, like you say, a lack of alignment with maybe corporate goals. Or, like you say, or it could rise all the way to the top, and it isn't just a manager, it's the entire structure. So from your perspective, what do you recommend that employers do when they start to try and assess, well, how do we get our arms around this issue of burnout? Yeah, and I think that there can be a lot of fear of having these discussions precisely because it can expose what looks like bad management. You know, I definitely advocate 
organizations getting together, talking about burnout, talking about their ideals and their conditions. And the risk is that the answer that comes out is, well, the problem is Steve. Uh, Steve is the cause of <laughs> damn it, Steve again. <laughs> and I would hope that that's that's not the direction that the conversation goes. And yeah, so I, I recognize that it can be risky. You know, you're putting your you know your your understanding of who you are as a manager on the line in those conversations. Um, but the upside of it is that. If you are managing an organization, and especially if you are, you know, in like a high up or or ownership position, then the people who work for you, you know, they're so much of their well-being is in your hands. Uh, I think often we think about, well, how can we serve our clients, customers and so on? And the work that we do does have an impact on them. But if you're a manager, then you're more directly, you have more direct responsibility for the well-being of the people who work in your department. And because they, they're, they're working there, you know, 40 plus hours a week while a customer or client is only there, you know, sporadically. Uh, so I think that it's worth it to recognize how much responsibility in a, in a positive way managers and employers have for the people who work for them and that you know those people who work for you they they want to do a good job they want to enact your goals uh and why not you know they're they're going to do the the best job that they can if they have the conditions to do it in uh i think that it's you know you got to assume the good faith of of those people you hired because you hired them for a reason and if things aren't going so well, then finding out why can improve their lives and can improve the organization as a whole. So I think that having these conversations is about burnout is essential to, to having a really healthy uh, business. Just um, kind of a segue from that. In sports, we often hear people say that I have to wear many hats. Um, uh, I'm constantly switching my hats, tackling different aspects of my job. Any thoughts or suggestions in terms of how to be successful, how to balance when you're trying to achieve success, but you have all these different roles that you're trying to fulfill? And you know, when you have multiple responsibilities, perhaps an increase in burnout or burnout can happen even quicker because of the fact that you feel stressed that you're pulled in all these different directions. So any suggestions of how to find that balance, if it can even exist? For sure, role ambiguity is one contributor to burnout that researchers have identified. If you are, like you said, trying to do uh, you know many different things, seemingly conflicting uh, things, then you're going to be more exposed to burnout. And it, right, it, it sometimes it's built into some industries that there is some level of role ambiguity. And so, you know, the, the, the challenge there is to identify a hierarchy, perhaps, of those roles. Uh, you know, if, if a person is comfortable with role ambiguity, great. Um, Lots of people aren't. And so, again, that you got to talk with uh, the people that you work with in order to get a little clearer on 
what is a what 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 roles to concentrate on and and how to prioritize them i think that's a great that's a great point um when you think about the role of an athlete development specialist it is by its very nature ambiguous to a certain extent there's a lot of different hats an athlete development specialist has to wear so for managers of athlete development specialists ensuring that there is a hard core nugget that they are responsible for is probably super critical to making sure that your your employers or employees are going to be healthier, happier. And actually, as I'm saying that, one of the questions I want to throw at you is you're looking at some of the research that's maybe come out on this. Is there a financial component that's been tied to this? So if you're looking at a firm going, hey, they have particularly, they have demonstrated high burnout. Is there a cost associated with that that has been recognized in the in the literature? Yeah, there are estimates of how much burnout costs, specifically in added healthcare needs. Uh, the number off the top of my head, I want to say something like two hundred million dollars uh, a year uh, in additional health spending uh, in the United States due to burnout. Uh, but I think that that underestimates the the true cost because there's all kinds of lost productivity as well um it's it's not it, it's certainly the the if the cost is in terms of hypertension and mental health problems and uh you know other kind of stress injuries you know that's that's quantifiable um just by how much we're paying for that um but yeah i mean the lost productivity is it's harder to say uh and you know if you are burned out, then you can't be the professional who you need to be and who your clients are expecting you to be. Uh, I'll mention one more time this social worker named Liz, uh, who I spoke with. Uh, she had a, a she said it really well. She said, "We're no good for the community if we're burned out." Uh, and so there's definitely going to be a loss in performance uh, based on based on that. And from your perspective, do you feel that there's been a lot of talk about the great resignation, or I've even heard it referred to as the great renegotiation, where was it roughly 40 million people over the last few years have, have walked away from jobs? Do you think that in some way, shape or form is, is related to burnout? Or, or, is, there, or is, there, is that more the, the realization that the uh, idealization of work isn't what it, what, it, what it was? So I'm curious as, as to how you've interpreted what's going on right now in the labor market? What I see is a lot of signs that workers are realizing that they have market value right now. Uh, and among those signs would be exactly the, the quit rate, uh, which is mostly not people just opting out of work entirely, but opting into better paying more and more secure jobs. Uh, there's in the U.S. there have been interesting and it, often often small scale, but um, uh, in some ways significant uh, labor actions, uh, the unionization of Starbucks and Amazon employees, a small number of them so far, to be sure. But these are huge companies, iconic companies that had resisted uh, labor organization for decades. Uh, in last fall, there was a, a strike wave across uh, manufacturing and, and somewhat in healthcare. And there's some evidence uh, of higher wages, uh, though 
I'm, I, I have a hard time interpreting some of this economic data. And, and I think it's, uh, you know, even, even the professional economists, uh, sometimes are, are, are having a hard time figuring out what the data is telling us. So all of those things together suggest workers know they have market value and they're exercising it. Um, there's, there's in some companies discussion of, you know, shorter hours, four day weeks, more flexibility, things like that. Someday, perhaps not too far in the future, that market value is going to go away. Economic trends will turn against workers. And what I want to do is to kind of build a hedge uh, uh, against that by playing up the human value that workers have regardless of their market value. Uh, and for us to think about work and its role in people's lives a bit differently so that we recognize that workers have an inherent dignity that they bring to work or that they have even if they never work a day in their lives. And if we recognize that dignity, then our cultural standard would, I hope, be to offer workers conditions that live up to that dignity. So, you know, me uh, being, you know, someone with, with expertise in, uh, you know, philosophy and, and culture and theology and stuff like that, I'm trying to argue, you know, from the cultural side uh, for significant change uh, that I hope can convince us to, uh, to, to make sure that, well, really to shift what we, what we think of uh, is possible on the labor market even when the economic conditions inevitably turn against workers. To that end, I guess, to, to kind of move this towards a, a conclusion, which has been a fascinating conversation, is what would you communicate? We'll kind of maybe look at it from both ends. From an employee, or, or sorry, employee perspective, what would you tell that individual who may be thinking, maybe I am burned out? What are some of the immediate action steps you'd give that individual to kind of take a step back and reflect on where they're at in order to take meaningful action to help them with their overall well-being. Yeah, I, I think it would start with self-reflection. Think about what are your ideals? What did you hope to get out of this career or this job? And then second, to think about if those ideals are being met. And perhaps there's some recognition that some of those ideals may be unrealistic, but perhaps those ideals are legitimate and they're just consistently haven't been uh haven't haven't been lived up lived up to by the conditions that you work in and then step 3 would be to talk with the people that you work with the people you work for the people your work serves to try see if there's a way to rethink your job to change some of the conditions to close that gap uh and it, it may some of those conversations may reveal especially with coworkers that they're finding similar problems. And so then you've got, you know, a, a group of people who can say, hey, we're all experiencing the same thing and it's making our jobs difficult. How can we change this? Uh, and, you know, I think that you, if everybody just kind of sits alone and, and you know, just wallows in misery uh, their own, then that, that, that those conversations can't happen and uh, you can't improve conditions. And on the other side of the equation, if you're the employer and you have an employee or perhaps a group of employees come to you and say, hey, we've got this issue, 
how do they have that conversation? What lessons do they need to take away? And what can they do in order to create that optimum or optimal work environment that ideally, I'm assuming they're going to want to, so they can perform in the marketplace. What would you say to those employers? The first step, I think, would be to, you know, listen and trust in the good faith of those employees that these are people that you hired for a reason because you believed in their ability to accomplish the goals that you have for the business. And to, to be open to some of those risky uh, conversations. And I would also say to, to think about your own ideals and reality. It, it very well may be that you as the employer are suffering from burnout too. And you can say, yeah, you know what? That thing that you all are finding so burdensome, I find burdensome too. Or you say, all right, well, here's why we do it this way. Um, and to, to think about how it might be done differently. Um, you know, yeah, the, the employer, I think, rightly might be afraid of those conversations. Um, but, you know, they're going to need to have some courage and uh, recognize that the possibility on the other side of these conversations is, you know, a greater chance of of accomplishing the goals that you have uh, for the organization. Well, I think that's probably a, a great place to to wrap it up. Before we jump off the call here, I did want to give you a chance to talk about your book that I know you just recently published. Maybe you could give everybody a quick hit on, on what that's about and what you covered in there, obviously beyond what we've talked about here today. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, the book is called The End of Burnout, Why Work Drains Us and How to Build Better Lives. Uh, it came out in January from University of California Press. And so it's, uh, it is from an academic publisher, but I, and so it, it, it has footnotes tucked away in the back. Uh, I, I, uh, but it's, it's written, I hope, uh, in an engaging way. I, I tried to write it in a way that people who work in a whole range of industries uh, would get something out of it. And, you know, part of it uh, addresses, you know, the, the starting point is my own story of burnout. And from there, I try to figure out, well, I, I kind of survey the conversation about burnout look into the history and the science of burnout, the causes of our burnout culture uh, in uh, North America and, and many other places. And then in the last few chapters, I look at possible ways beyond this culture. And I look in some weird places like uh, a remote Benedictine monastery in the desert of New Mexico. I, I talk to social workers, I talk to artists with disabilities and you know, dozens of other workers who are trying to find a way beyond burnout culture. So there aren't, there, there's not like a list of 10 tips at the end of the book. Um, the, the, because, you know, I think the solutions are, uh, are, are trickier and, and they have to operate on a little bit of a higher scale. But I, I they hope the book seems to be a bit more macro, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I hope the book is, is informative and, and a fun and inspiring read. Well, again, thank you very much for, for participating in the conversation here today. Hopefully, Stephanie, we haven't given anybody a podcast burnout. Hopefully, we've avoided that. <laughs> but with that, thank you very much, uh, Stephanie. Thank you so much. John, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. And on behalf of our global partners and our members at PADS, thanks again for taking the time to share your thoughts. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm.